Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, July 13th, 2021 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new, if you've never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Harp Dog Brown, a Vancouver, British Columbia bass singer and harmonica player. Born in 1962, Brown felt like he was born for the circus, born to travel. The blues tapped him on the shoulder and Harp Dog found his circus and the best way to travel, with a band. He began playing guitar at about age 15 in a local garage band. He later played in a duo that opened for performers in comedy clubs and followed that with solo gigs as a singer and guitar player. In the early 1980s, he answered an ad for a vocalist in a traveling road band. After six weeks on the road, he quit and put together his own traveling blues band. Harp Dog got his stage name at a gig during the fall of 1989, when at the end of the show, two audience members began shouting, Harp Dog! Harp Dog! He liked the name and went on to use it as his stage name. He eventually made it his legal name. Harp Dog has been called a blues evangelist, and that's a very fitting moniker. I speak the blues like it's the truth, and it is, he says. I do feel like I'm a servant of the people, a missionary, if you will. Music could heal people if they pay attention to the messages in these songs. He delivers those messages using the vintage sound, whether it be with his low-down classic blues band, The Travelin' Blues Show, or with his uptown blues band. Harp Dog says, blues has healing power. 
It's a beautiful celebration of our perfectly flawed lives. We help people forget about their issues of the moment, and then they realize that we all have our issues, and that's okay. Harp Dog Brown has grown a reputation as a real deal purveyor of classic electric blues. Think of old chess records and sun records of the late 1940s and early 50s. These days, he's been touring more and more with his Uptown Blues Band, a vintage New Orleans blues sound that is piano-driven and at any given show could feature trombone, sax, clarinet, trumpet, and more. Still a vintage vibe, just a different vintage. Performing mostly original compositions, their sets often include great songs of the masters Louis Jordan, Louis Armstrong, Sonny Boy Williamson, Wynoni Harris, and even Duke Ellington. Harp Dog has won four Maple Blues Awards for Harmonica Player of the Year in 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2019, along with countless nominations, including Male Vocalist and Album of the Year. His song, No Eyes for Me, was a winner of the International Songwriting Competition. He holds a Fraser Valley Music Award and has three Western Canadian Music Awards nominations for Blues Artist of the Year, a Juno nomination for Blues Recording of the Year, and is the only Canadian to win the coveted Muddy Award for Best Blues Performance. During the shutdown of live shows and touring during the COVID pandemic, Harp Dog has been hosting a series of half-hour video shows available through his website called In the Doghouse featuring live performances and interviews with musical guests. There is a link in my show notes to uh, Harp Dog's website and his show in the doghouse. Harp Dog's last two releases, Traveling with the Blues, 2016, and For Love and Money, 2019, earned three Maple Blues Awards nominations each. Harmonica Player, Male Vocalist, and Album of the Year. Both also topped the Roots and Blues charts and followed his top 20 charting release, What It Is, from 2014. For Love and Money entered the Living Blues radio charts at number 6 in May 2019. The release also achieved number one in Canada for all genres, number one in classic blues worldwide, and top 10 blues albums worldwide on the Roots Music Report. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, the one, the only, Harp Dog Brown. Hey, Harp Dog. Hey, how you doing, Greg? 
I'm doing great. It's really super to uh, talk with you. You know, I have listeners all over the world. I just added a listener from Belgium. And, uh, and although I have been to Western Canada, I have never been to Vancouver. For my listeners who may be unfamiliar, would you talk a bit about the music scene in Vancouver, especially since prior to the COVID-19 shutdown? Well, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, sadly, I think um, the state of live uh, blues or, you know, music in general, but let's just focus on blues and even say, you know, jazz, you know, educated blues is as I, as I see it. Um, it's been a kind of a dying center. It's been a, been, how do I put this? Um, it's been dying over the, you know, decades. I, I mean, up until about mid 95, I think it was, yeah, it was December 95. Um, the Yale, which was the premier Canadian, Western Canadian blues club, and probably one of the better blues clubs uh, in its day, you know, and that's, uh, well, I'll say from the 70s till, till about, you know, the 90s. It was a six night stand, like most venues were. You'd roll in on Sunday, play Monday to Saturday, roll out and roll in another town Sunday to play Monday to Saturday. Uh, and um, that all started to kind of break down in the mid 90s. And I remember, I, in fact, I believe I was the last one to have a full six night stand at the Yale in the summer of 95. Mm -hmm. um, then it then they broke down till they were doing just back Friday Saturdays and they'd had different things you know local guys playing on it you know they give a a Monday to somebody and then a Tuesday to somebody else and then there would be a Wednesday night jam that was hosted by somebody else all kind of local stuff kind of and then just doing the weekends uh, and that was kind of a start of the end um, the there's a club in my hometown of Edmonton Alberta uh, that uh, you know was they they were i guess the last six night stand in a country and now they were called well it's in the commercial hotel but they called it blues on white it's in white avenue w-h-y-t-e white avenue on the south side of edmonton and a lot of chicago you know and other touring artists would come in and do a six night stand at the uh at the commercial you know um but uh yeah, it's it's sad, you know. Like uh, uh, there was a point in time where, you know, around the turn of the century, that we all realized that that I mean, Vancouver, you know, one of the most cultural cities in Canada, had no legitimate jazz or blues joint anymore in it. Mm. They they closed it down, and uh, you know, we can point fingers, but you know, you point fingers, you know, the old saying. One's pointing away, but three are pointing right back at you. So I've never been, you know, I don't like to point fingers. However, um, there, I guess we can identify certain points in our lives that, that were like a changing point of, of you know, where good was being, you know, shoveled aside for something that was planned obsolescence, I guess, you know, like, you know, we, we you know, we, welcomed the internet well we welcomed the tv back in the 50s we welcomed you know television 
And then cable vision, wow, like more than two channels, you know, and up in Canada, we had three, but one was French. And if you didn't speak French and out West, you know, unless you were migrated West from, from uh, you know, Quebec or something, you didn't really speak a lick of French. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I grew up with two channels and then cable vision came in. All of a sudden there was 12 or 13. Now there's like hundreds of channels and they still don't offer anything. But once again, a lot of distractions, right? Uh, the home entertainment systems, the big screen TVs, surround sound, all that stuff slowly was uh, like, uh, I, I see it now as a, a, you know, definitely all by design to eliminate the social connection that we as humans had now we're about the same age you might i don't know uh, how old are you craig i'll be 66 a week from yesterday okay well then you've got a few years on yeah. me I, I i hit 59 in january uh but we're from the same school when it comes mm-hmm. down to uh you know seeing certain things and and registering those certain things in our lives right um and you know it's just like it's slowly kind of has become this this plan of of uh, you know these kind of di- dissecting or or, or uh, what's a better word uh, uh, the to to um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, demolishing well not to apart kind of more like to, to it's it's a D word I'm looking for uh, <laughs> starts with letter D and it. Uh, it, it de- detached to yeah. detach us with our social connections you know i mean like you and i both know i mean i'm sure you know I, I, even 20 years ago i was noticing how uh you know if i drive by a bus stop you know during a you know a busy time i would see 10 or more people standing around all looking at their hands because their phone is in their hands right. and they're texting they're not talking they're not there's no social connection anymore and this is our social media right you know uh we're missing the most important part of that word anti you know mm-hmm. uh not auntie but anti-social media mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you know so i mean i remember and i'm sure you do you know like in a even up into the mid 90s you know like the internet wasn't really handed handed off to handed off to us you know uh minions on this planet until around mid 90 and i know i didn't get a computer handed to me until the turn of the century i think it was around you know 2000 when i entered this world of internet but uh i remember you know living on the you know east side of vancouver in the early 90s and any day of the week I would, at you know, evening, I would decide that I'm going to go out tonight. Not exactly sure why, but with no big plan, but I was going to go out because I knew if I sat on the couch, nothing was going to happen. Right. And I'd go out, and every time i come back that, whatever night it was, I knew why I went out because something happened. I caused something to happen by stepping out of the house and going into the social connections, being, you know, go to the Yale, uh, see who's playing there. Or, the, you know, the, there was a scene where there was a, you know, a vibrant, I'd say at least eight 
solid gigs in the city of Vancouver alone up until like the mid nineties, you know, for a blues band to play. And, and they were all pretty, pretty well six night stands, you know? Yeah. Um, You know, society, society has really changed. You and I are close enough in age when you were a kid in high school uh, or when I was a kid in high school and you probably did the same thing. We would get together with our friends and listen to records. Yeah. We would sit in, a, a, you know, like I, I even had a, I was a, among my group of friends. I was the only one that had an eight-track tape player. So oh, yeah. we'd get on our bikes, we'd ride, you know, a couple three miles down to the uh, store where you could buy eight-track tapes. We'd pick one or two out. We'd ride back to my place, and we'd plug them in and listen to them, and we'd talk about the music. And when uh, you used to have records, you read the liner notes, and you you had a communal uh, relationship with that music. Well, and today everybody's plugged in individually. Yeah, and 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 not listen to the same stuff, or not not even sharing the, I mean, I, I, I see for me, I mean, there was eight traction vehicles, um, but we'd end up going to like somebody's basement yeah, with a record player and, uh, and we would, you know, listen to records and read and look at the cool photos and all that yep. stuff Yep, and really dig the music and, uh, and, and collectively, not just, you know, individually by yourself, and you could hold it, you could touch it, you know, you could smell it. It was, it, it was, it, it was, it was substantial. Um, it, it had a reality to it instead of a virtual reality, like you know, the MP3s and the streaming Spotify's and and all that. I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I, I love the fact that that you know, um, I mean, I could only wish that I would have had you know, uh, videos and uh, audio uh, at a click of a dial uh, for me to tune into things that never, you know, the artists that never came up to Canada, uh, you know, took me, I was lucky enough to know some guys that had the right records mm-hmm. that turned me on to, you know, Sonny Boy Williamson and, and you know, both Walters and stuff like that, you know, sure. and, and uh, had records of, of things. You know, of course, my record store, I could find Muddy Waters and know and uh, john lee hooker and, and mm-hmm. jimmy reed and, and the likes right but but i mean to get uh you know deeper into like say you know papa george lightfoot you know i mean that wasn't in my record you know stores uh the more known guys like bb king of course you know but uh mm-hmm. but you know you wouldn't really find anything from say you know guitar slim you know mm-hmm. i was a little yeah. tougher to find right more obscure so, people yeah yeah, and, and, and ultimately it's like, well, there was no market for the record labels to really see, you know, what was white Western Canadian, you know, uh, marketplace for, uh, you know, Sun House and Lead Belly and stuff like that. You know, I mean, first time I heard, you know, uh, Black Betty was from Ram Jam. But then I, you know, when I found out that it was a Lead Belly song, I had to go find the source, you know, and, and, and hear the, the original, you know. And I've always been that kind of a kid where I, I look at Stone's records, I go, who's McKinley Morganfield? You right, know? right, right, right. Uh, I, know, know, I, wanted... I don't know that name. I just know him as Muddy Waters, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I didn't know the two connected until I stumbled across uh, you know, muddy Mississippi waters. No, there was a different album. It just said, uh, 
McKinley Morganfield, a.k.a. Muddy Waters, I think was, you know, an LP that a buddy of mine had, you know, and I never really had connected the dots, you know, because I didn't understand. And of course, we didn't have Google. We didn't have Wikipedia. We didn't have YouTube and stuff, right? So there has been some good, definitely some good. But I think, you know, I mean, in conversation with uh, a lot of you know people these days, especially um, with all the truth and and lies that are that are you know coming to the surface, you know, for all of us to kind of wad, uh, you know, wade through and and kind of try to try to weed our own gardens. I have said this more than once that and this is my my belief, and I do believe that within all truths are lies hidden okay. lies and within all lies you will find truth <laughs> you see that's how that's how it all kind of flows right sure. so- and i i've talked with this with most uh, performing musicians who i've interviewed over the last six seven months and that is that we should remember that the renaissance occurred after the end of the hundred years war and the black death that wiped out one third of Europe back in the, in the 14th century. Uh-huh. And that after the end of World War I and the end of the Spanish flu epidemic, right. we, got the roaring, we got the roaring 20s. Uh-huh. So I keep, I keep wanting to believe, and I, well, I don't wanna believe, I do believe that we're gonna see a resurgence of interest in music and the arts, and not just listening to music, but the communal consumption of music, because I think people have missed that experience of being in an audience, interacting with live musicians. Well, you know, that's it, that's it. I, I, uh, I hope that comes to pass, but from what I was in, you know, just, uh observing uh just in the last say 15 years and i mean up until we were all forced out of the pool you know uh march for me it was march 15th 2020 when i got yeah. my first my first uh postponement and and uh and cancellation uh that that followed suit for the whole year as we all know uh but when uh when that happened, uh, I uh, oh, Jesus, I sorry, I, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Um, what did you do? Okay, uh, uh, okay. So, uh, you know, I was noticing. See, I was I was averaging easily two hundred fifty shows a year, right? Mm-hmm, and, uh, sure. All over North America, and, and so, and of course, I'm in a great place to. Uh, well, one of the best seats in the house because, well, I'm right in front of the band, but I'm also, I can see just about everything. And you never find me performing with my eyes closed. Mm-hmm. I'm the salesman. So I'm in the people business. And I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking for people that are, that are engaged with me or engaged with us uh, as a collective. Mm-hmm. And I lost count of how many times I saw, you know, like, two people sitting at a table and they're both looking at the phones. Yeah. You know, and, and they, they look like they're on a date. It's like, what kind of a date is that? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and they're like, they're not paying attention to anything, but their phones won't stay. Yeah. The, 
you know, stay home, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, you know, it just, it's, it started to look like, like we were becoming obsolete, uh, that, you know, live music for one thing, uh, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> here's an, here's a perfect example of like a, a wow moment for me. Um, uh, I, I had, uh, dropped my, my girlfriend off to see Eric, Erica Badu. Okay. Uh, at at the uh, at the Orpheum, a fabulous venue in uh, Vancouver, I bought her a ticket. They were pretty expensive, so I I just got her a ticket, not me, um, and I just hung around, took a little walk downtown on Gravel Street. You know, it was a, you know just for maybe ninety minutes or a couple hours, right? And I see this one venue that used to be a strip joint that I would you know get a steak sandwich at from time to time when i back in the early 90s i used to live you know in a hotel on granville street sure uh, i was on a road 40 weeks a year why have a you know a rental for those 40 weeks of the exactly. year exactly uh, you know so when i was on the road i didn't have to pay any rent uh, other than just you know an office space for my mail right but uh anyhow you know and there was a couple of strip joints on granville street that seemingly had some of the best you know five six dollars steak sandwiches you know so you know i mean once you've seen enough tna it's not really a driving force anymore but you know a six dollars you know steak sandwich and fries that's worth my time anyway there you go <laughs> i'm walking past this particular one on nelson and granville uh and of course there's no longer a strip joint uh i don't think there was i don't think there might be one or two on the strip anymore down on Granville Street. But at this particular time, and this has been about maybe 2015 or so. Um, and it was a big sign that said live music. And I went, wow, how cool is that? Because they used to also have live music down there uh, at one point in time. And there's this like major D kind of guy out on the street. And, uh, you know, I, I, I approach, he says, oh, there's a cover charge. And I said, oh, yeah. Uh, who's the band? He says, well, no, it's, it's a DJ. It says live music. He says, well, the DJ's alive. Okay. Yeah. There's a spin on things. Yeah. But, you know, so, you know, so, and, and, and I mean, like, ultimately, as you know, uh, there has been, you know, they, they're considered entertainers and I guess, you know, they're, they are, and they're, you know, you and my, you know, the, the DJs in our world were just guys who spun records for dance hops and whatnots. And I know, like, I knew some guys that DJ that, you know, they, they'd rent themselves out to, like, a, a wedding uh, reception mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, at a hall party. And it was, of course, a lot cheaper to do that than to get a shitty band, you know, and, and I mean shitty because there's, you know, you can buy, you can hire shitty bands if you're looking for, well, how much, how much, how much, instead of like, oh, got to get these guys, they're great, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and the DJs then, they just play songs for you. Well, then somehow with this, you know, the hip hop and spinning and the discs and the, and the you know, waka 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 and all that stuff, it became more of an art form, no doubt about that. But I still can't call that live music. Yeah, not quite the same thing as people playing actual instruments. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, so you know, it's it's it has been a it's been on the decline, I guess. Yeah. Uh, for you know, for like the last since well, I started really kind of noticing it mid nineties, and not just 
out west in Vancouver, but I mean, all across our nation. And I think, you know, it's generally the whole Western world, Western civilization has been kind of infiltrated with all the other distractions to keep you at home or, yeah. you know, un un unattended even when you're out and about. Yeah, I hear right? you. I hear you. Yeah. Well, well, anyway, I that was a long, long answer for the first question. Well, that's okay. I mean, you know, because I'm here to pick your brain, but right. I want to, well, I want to shift gears because okay. uh, in preparation for any time I get ready to interview an artist, I, I spend a lot of time listening to their music so that okay. I become familiar with, you know, who they are th through their music. So I know that from listening to your music, you bring together different styles of the blues but for the sake of a starting point of discussion is the blues truly an international style or is it a regional style that is imitated internationally now my thinking is this i'm thinking about all the various pockets of blues styles uh, you know, even within the United States, we have Delta blues, Piedmont blues, Texas blues, New Orleans blues, Chicago blues, you know, and then there's also all the English blues musicians and the blues influenced English rock bands. So tell me, as a great blues musician yourself, is this style of music truly an international style or or is it, uh, you know, something that just uh, gets imitated internationally? Well, that's a good question, but uh, the way I see it, and of course, you know, you're asking a white Canadian boy that's been lost in a blue since he first stumbled into them, uh, but happily lost, you know? I mean, like, uh, uh, not, uh, not uh, stumbling around blind, but just, you know, uh, kind of like lost in the glory of it all, right? like a kid in a candy shop and a store is closed, but you're in there, right? That <laughs> yeah. you're lost. Gotcha. Um, uh, so uh, <clears throat> I've always felt that blues is more of a universal language than any kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, international or any, there's, you know, I, I think I was the first one I ever heard anybody, I've never heard anybody else say that the blues has no borders. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I mean, you know, I was one of the first Canadians to, to, you know, to do some things in the Pacific Northwest, you know, I mean, like there, there'd never been a Canadian blues band play the Rose City Blues Fest in Portland. And, and I was the, <laughs> the, the only Canadian to ever do that. And, it, and I say that because I played the last Rose City Blues Fest in 1991. It did not have another festival in the, under the name Rose City Blues Fest in 92 hmm. or beyond. And that introduced me to the Portland scene, Portland, Oregon, that is, and also to the uh, to the other guy who uh, created the Waterfront Festival in 1991. See, uh, the, there was two guys that were behind the Rose City Blues Fest, mm -hmm. and they had a falling out in 91, and uh, one guy got, it was always July 4th weekend, is yeah. the Rose City Blues Fest, but in 1991, they 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 broke ties, the two of them, and uh, Delmark Goldfarb was one guy, and David Klingen was the other. 
Uh, David Klingen had a cool record store called Backbeat Records on, on just just on uh, Burnside, which is kind of like uh, the Main Street as you go into the downtown core of Portland. Uh, and it was a fabulous record store. I mean, like fabulous. Mm-hmm. I got lost there many times, right? Just digging through cool stuff that you do not see in Canada. Um, and Delmar Goldfarb was the other cat that, <clears throat> so they had this, so uh, David created the Waterfront Festival and beat his ex-partner to the date and got the July 4th ah. in 91. Mm-hmm. So then Delmar, he he picked the uh, a, a long weekend in August, mid 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 August, I think third week in August or something was when they were doing their last Rose City Blues Fest, and so I got on that, and of course you know that then connected me to becoming the first Canadian to play the Waterfront Festival in 1992, and mm-hmm. then I you know did it again in '94. Um, Portland kind of opened its doors and sort of welcomed uh, us, you know. Canadian white boys in from Vancouver. We we're only about a five and a half hour drive. Oh, sure. But it was like we were like the first ones to kind of like break down that 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 whole thing about you know Can- Canadians have blues too. You know we've got the blues sure. too. We just didn't have as much of a source of the true traditional blues and or the migration of the blues. You know, I mean uh, Mississippi didn't come to Canada. Mississippi went up to Chicago and Detroit, New York, and something like that for better paying jobs exactly. it was just simple it's just like man if i'm gonna you know if i can make a better wage and a bigger city i'm gonna do that get off the plantation or or the uh the the uh the share cropping or uh farming right right so you know we didn't get as much up here in canada but but you know we did get some you know there was mm-hmm. definitely i mean like nat cole came up here and played you know played vancouver nat king cohen you know that we we definitely had our share there were times where louis armstrong made it up to canada as well right muddy waters Howlin' wolf but not out west well I mud see. did wolf didn't but you know toronto montreal now those are the two big cities out east in canada you know just north of you know basically you know the new york state you find, you know, Montreal and Quebec and, and of course, you know, Toronto. Toronto is kind of the biggest metropolitan city in Canada, sort of our version of New York. Right. Toronto would be that. Right? Sure. Um, and uh, and of course, yes, there was a lot of, you know, great uh, migrant, you know, touring artists, uh, uh, you know, Chicago bands and, and the likes uh, coming up to Toronto. You know, mm-hmm. in the day, right? But not so much LOS. So, um, where was I going with that? Sorry. Well, uh, we, we were talking about we were talking about blues. You know, kind of being truly international. And I wanted, to, I just wanted to pick your brain and kind of move you in a direction. I know that we both know John Namath. Sure. Because yeah. you've had you've had John on the doghouse, and uh, in, in the doghouse, yes, in the doghouse, yes, not on the doghouse, but in the doghouse. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for the correction. And I, I interviewed uh, John for my podcast, oh, probably six, seven weeks ago. And uh, and interestingly enough, he and I are both from Boise, Idaho. Okay. That's that's another way that we made a connection. I right. but anyway, I asked when I asked him the same question about about blues, he's got some really interesting ideas. He even went on to talk about how he felt like Native American uh vocables uh or chants 
have got elements of the blues in them. And that it's just a matter of, you know, it's a way of expressing that human emotion. Uh, and uh, in a way, I guess you might say that we've codified that emotion musically into a 12 bar form with, you know, taking the major scale and using the flat third, fifth, and seventh to give it a particular sound. And that's kind of like our color palette to express with. So I, I, think, I think you're spot on too when you say that it really is international because everybody gets the blues. I don't care if well, you're universal, universal. Yeah, because it's, universal it's, a, it's a basic human emotion. Yeah, yeah. so there's no, no borders. Uh, I mean, like look at Aki Kumar, you know I mean? He, he was born in Bombay and you know he's he and he speaks the blues and he and he and he channels the blues through you know songs that are that are reflecting life as he sees it and see now this is how i've uh come to describe blues it's not the chord changes or patterns right. it's not the notation sure enough you know like uh see i don't i don't uh I don't read. I'm not a notation okay. guy. I sure. did take some theory. I understand how to, you know, to communicate with a with a schooled musician, um, but but not by notation. You know, sure. so we're talking about something to keep B flat. Um, I don't, you know, I don't reflect. You know, I don't refer to, you know, the note of the four, or the five, or the six, or the two, or the flat three. Um, right. I just talk numbers you know right. once we know what key we're in then i just talk numbers and and, sure. and of course the harp player i think position but with you know if i'm talking to you as a trumpeter i'm not thinking position i'm just talking numbers you know okay so coming down from the four uh chromatic down to the one at this point here just before the you know the the, the turnaround mm -hmm. the, these mm -hmm. things i can you know help so i've got enough to communicate well enough with uh school musicians to get my point or my vision across musical vision across when uh arranging songs and performance and even in writing but really truly to me blues is the message it's the lyrical content it's got nothing to do with the vehicle because let me look at wolf he could do you know he was perfect example of great blues laying on a one one chord groove exactly i was no. just thinking of smokestack lightning yeah it's just it's Perfect. just the yeah. same riff over and over again exactly. there, are, there yeah. are no chord changes yeah yeah it just it just stays on a one you know and uh there's there's uh you know more than more than a handful of uh, wolf songs you know i mean muddy waters uh you know uh Mattis boy doesn't go anywhere but just mm -hmm. on a one you know so there are uh, there's a, you know, a handful of songs that don't require any chord changes at all. Oh, yeah. So to me, it's not, it's not, it's not the vehicle, the, the, the it's the message. Yeah. And, okay. um, uh, you know, so to me, it's all blues. If it's somebody reporting our life as they see it, the message wise, because that's all blues is somebody reporting on life as they see it. Right. And, it's just just reporting on their truth as they see it you know sure um in which case you know it is a universal language of the people in fact before it was before it was termed blues music it was called black folk music and i'm talking right. folk as in people the folk not mm -hmm. 
what we say, oh, folk yeah. music, that's like strummy, 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 and ha, he, ha, 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 you know? Yeah, right, right. No, music of the people, folk music, so the black folk music. Um, and, you know, there was other terms like race music and race records and all that mm -hmm. stuff, but I never really, never really caught into race. Well, I the think thing, there's one race, it's called the human race. Exactly. And we're not born into it. We are learned to be a part of the human race. Well, we're I think mammal, but not humans. You, right? you know, you know as well that all those labels are really only what were applied by the record industry for the purposes of marketing. And sure. musically speaking, when you listen to some of the stuff from back in the, well, if you can go back to the 1920s, uh, you can't tell whether it's a black band, a white band, a purple band, a green band, whatever. It's just music. But if it was made by white rural people, it was called hillbilly music. And if it was made by black rural people, it was called the blues. And it was only oh. for marketing purposes. But I'm, right. I'm with you. It's just music. And, and uh, of course, people are still always going to ask you, what kind of music do you play? And uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, my favorite, my favorite quote, uh, was I, I believe it was Count Basie. I may be wrong. It was if it wasn't Count, it was Duke. But they were being interviewed by somebody in the fifties. Asks them what kind of music you listen to. And he says, "Don't you know there's only two kinds: good and, and bad. bad." Yeah, I love that because you know it's not the genre; it's the performance. Mm -hmm. I exactly. may not like a certain genre but i can still like the quality of the performance yeah yeah and i'll say that's good yeah i don't like it not my cup of tea but that is quality yeah lewis armstrong used to say something he says anything you can pat your foot to is good music there you go you know well you know after listening to a lot of your music and watching uh a lot of the uh in the doghouse videos on your website i'm really curious to know about the other musicians in your band and the guys that you perform with regularly because man they're really some good musicians well uh thank you uh I've, I've always been pretty blessed i i think and feel very blessed with uh the ability to to assemble a good team you know um i was uh, I think I was kind of forced to be a band leader. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't something that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be the leader of the band. I didn't want to be the front man. I didn't want to be the singer. I wasn't the things I was looking for. I kind of wanted to be the harmonica player. That's about it. You know, I just wanted to be the harp player. But, you know, um, there wasn't really any bands hiring harp players. And, and I wasn't very good when I was learning. But, I mean, I, you know. Uh, I was playing guitar first mm -hmm. and then I started singing and then, you know, uh, my voice kind of got better, but my guitar playing just sort of didn't, you know, didn't get any better or worse. And, uh, you know, I was just maybe 19 or something at that time. And I was playing a little lounge uh, on the West End of Edmonton called the Crazy Horse Lounge. And I was doing Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays and, and you know, just singing singing from my heart and just you know playing you know this electric guitar through an amplifier you know friends would come and people that you know that just happened to be in the neighborhood that was my first gig got to a point where 
uh, I felt if I was going to get any better, I needed to move forward. And I hired on to a touring band. Mm-hmm. They were a rock band, middle of the road, you know, MRI rock band, you know, just playing stuff that I never really listened to because I just wasn't, you know, uh, AM, FM kind of guy. I understand. Uh, you know, so, so I, I, but I, but I, but I, you know, I, I learned the songs that I wanted to, you know, go forward right and, mm-hmm. and go on the road and of course six night stands and even shitty hotels was cool you know i was 19 it, it could only get better i thought you know mm-hmm. i'll never forget the first place i played it was in this northern alberta town called fairview alberta and i'll, I'll be honest with you that was a lie there was no view at all but <laughs> um, and it wasn't fair either <laughs> no, it, was, it was very unfair <laughs> we drove all this way for what yeah yeah but you know um and you know uh you know like hotel room uh that i shared with the younger he was 18 18 year old kid playing bass and me and then the other two guys were in their 30s right yeah um uh but uh you know open the door we're sharing this room and they just got two mattresses on the floor <laughs> there's the bathroom was down the hall with no lock on the door that's where the shower is too that you had to kind of coax to get wet um and you know there's a sink that you wouldn't use as a urinal in the in your own room with a tv that's got the the, the you know the uh the the, the rabbit uh, ears yeah no but they, they they were just you know uh coat hanger oh a coat hanger stuffed in it <laughs> a real as, class joint <laughs> yeah oh yeah there's and a blue there's first, a blues song in there somewhere oh yeah everywhere i look there seems to be a blue song once again loses what life yeah somebody reported on life right so um yeah, so I mean, but I'll never forget. I mean, like I thought to myself, "Wow, it can only get better from here," mm-hmm. you know. And I was right. So, but I was, I was, I was in. You know, I just, uh, I never really expected a lot other than I just wanted to kind of never be bored. And uh, you know, I, I always, I had that gypsy, you know, blood. I guess you know, uh, being a, a a foster child, a, a, an adopted child, you know basically unwanted child i never really felt like i belonged or was really planted or landed anywhere for long you know i just everything Mm -hmm. seemed to be temporary and it and it works for me you know of course now i'm like a fish out of water right because right uh since you know this lockout and you know like by the time i turned around and got back uh here uh after the attempt to go to work in 2020 I realized I couldn't remember the last time I arrived anywhere without a departure date. Mm-hmm. And it was just bizarre to sure. like, I couldn't remember. I couldn't even go, oh, yeah, yeah, I was back, you know, well, you know, when I was 12. You know, I mean, like, I can't remember the time that I got somewhere and I didn't know where I had to be and when I had to be there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's, but on the same token, I also realized how tired and exhausted I was once I had nothing, you know, bullying me to go to work. Right. I understand. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the guys that uh, are playing with you on your recordings oh. and in the, uh, in the videos, the, uh, in the doghouse videos, are those guys you've been playing with uh, pretty much for a good long while or, or are they guys well, you just picked up or? Yeah. See, um, the, the, uh, the band I assembled for the, uh, for the doghouse sessions were um uh, 
because of you know covid and and all and i i you know i mean i've my business is still based out of vancouver but i've been you know hanging my hat in central alberta since this uh pandemic you know uh 15 months ago yeah um you know uh so um it just made sense to uh, reach out to ex bloodhounds. Now I put, you know, my first band of bloodhounds together in 1990, 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used the name, the bloodhounds for out uh, into the two thousands. I think it was, you know, I was using it up until about 20, 2012 or 2013 when I, I hired uh, a group of guys from the Island and they just flatly said, we don't want to be bloodhounds. All right. Okay. You'll be banned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We just want to be banned. I said, okay, banned it is. Okay. Banned. Let's go. So, uh, but you know, the, the two identifiable, like main, uh, you know, the, the original bloodhounds had a unique sort of sound. They're all great guys. And that's where we all kind of created this whole thing. Um, and I had a tenor sax player, Jerry cook, uh, who is amazing and he's still to this day in fact he's even on the last album because you know he plays killer sax and uh, so he plays all the baritone and and tenor sax on the uh, last record that we did mm-hmm. for love of money um, and then you know you know electric bass drums guitar and myself it was a five-piece group we okay. traveled for about two years 1990 to 92 by 92 uh, I it was time to ch- change gears a little bit and uh, I elected to go with no added horn, forcing me to become a little more interesting as a harmonica player, because sure. I was leaning on Jerry a lot, um, and rightfully so. I mean, I, I, as a smart leader, I am there to exploit the powers on the field. So, exactly. you know, for me to, to, to negate somebody who can run with the ball would be a foolish thing to do, right? Why have them on the team if you're not going to throw them the ball? So, uh, so I forced myself to become more interesting by eliminating that crutch, that uh, musical crutch that I had on my right. You know, that could just lead to Jerry blowing tell him to blow, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went with uh, doghouse bass, upright bass, gut bucket bass instead of electric bass. And I wanted to kind of get closer to traditional, you know, Chicago sound, but pre-World War II, you know? Mm-hmm. Or just around that era, you know, like, once again, I didn't want that funky kind of bass line. Right, right, right. You know, and pop and stuff. I was in more like the the uh, like Willie Dixon style and uh, and uh, you know Francis Nolan that that those kind of bass right. type right 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 I got um, you yeah so you know that was the kind of stuff that I wanted to get in and I lucked out uh, turned out this guy came from Northampton England to fill in for a rockabilly band that had lost their upright bass player to the Tail Draggers remember or, <laughs> no, the tail the Tailgaters is it was it uh, uh, was it the Tailgaters uh alvin alvin uh was it uh dave alvin and the tailgaters was that the band out of austin uh that i've drawn a blank yeah uh uh, so you know yeah so this dude left his band (laughs) that he was in called the nervous fellas to go play and to be based in austin 
and left these guys high and dry. And uh, the record label found this this cat, Pete Turlin, sent him to Vancouver to be their bass player, who ended up not working well with them, was available. I took him on. And I was the one that actually kept him in the country a couple of times. He's now, uh, you know, got three children and, uh, you know, and is a landed immigrant from Northampton, England. And he's the guy that played bass in the doghouse, the upright bass player, that's Pete Turlin. So we go back to 1992. Wow. And, but, but we haven't played together for years. Um, it was at least 13 years since we had even seen each other, I think. Mm-hmm. So the time that I just got, you know, assembled all these guys that were living in the Edmonton region. So we got the studio just outside of Edmonton place where I could crash because I'm about an hour and a half away from Edmonton. But I hired guys who were and the little guy, you know, Ben Charlie, Charlie Benjamin Sears, the, the little guy on guitar, he also hired on with me in nineteen ninety-two. Both those guys were on my first studio session in ninety-two called Beware of Dog, the first CD I came out with in ninety-two. Those two guys were on it. So they're the oldest alumni. Okay. And the keyboardist, Graham Guest, the keyboardist, I took him out on the road about 1999. You know, I had, you know, another lineup of Bloodhounds with electric bass, guitar, drums, just a four-piece group. I kind of ran that way for years, just as a four-piece. Uh, better math and all, uh, four-way split instead of five or more. But uh, Graham, I, 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 I decided to take put the fifth wheel on the Cadillac, so to speak. And I and I, I hired Graham to join us. And we went out, we did a, you know, but I think it was only a three, three or four week run in, in like 99, maybe two to three weeks, uh, as far as like Winnipeg and back, um, which is sort of just north of like Minneapolis, I think, for, you know, for the Americans that may not mm-hmm. know our Canadian geography. Uh, but, uh, you know, Graham, and then of course in, in 2010, uh, Graham and I started touring around just as a duo when I even, you know, produced two uh, unofficial CDs, which just me and him in studio with him playing the grand piano, me singing and playing harmonica. So Graham goes back with me from 1999, mm-hmm. and then of course duo worked with me. Uh, so that was like the, the main core of the Doghouse band. The young guy from uh, upper state New York on drums. He relocated to Canada uh, and I hired him like once and just absolutely loved him. Uh, Emmett Van Etten is his name. And he's a, he's a, you know, he just have, you know, he brought himself to Canada and made us a little better country for it, you know? So he's the only guy that, you know, didn't have as much uh, history. Now, the band I recorded, you know, that I toured with and I recorded with, you know, the Uptown Blues Band out of Vancouver. Well, those guys, you know, the, the young horn players, amazing. And I mean, they're 24 years old, you know, they're 25 years old. And, and I met them on the east side of Vancouver. I was doing this sort of a residency every Thursday that I wasn't on the road. I'd play this 100, some odd 112-year-old hotel uh bar and it was sort of like you know outreach you know it wasn't about the money we didn't charge tickets you know cover charges like one of those you know lawyers and and street people would walk into this place and all drink from the same cup you know Mm -hmm. 
We loved it. The old, the old Ivanhoe. And it was like, you know, right on the corner of National and Maine, right by the main train station of the CN Rail as this Ivanhoe Hotel. And we used to play there. And these two young guys, the clarinetist and the trombonist, approached me on one of the Thursdays, asked if they could sit in. And I said, well, what do you play? And then one guy says, trombone. The other kid says, clarinet. They're both about 22 then. And I said, absolutely. Now, I was just playing with a guitar player and upright bass, no drums at that time. Mm-hmm. Doing a trio on Thursdays. But we pulled out some stuff and these kids, they didn't need a microphone. They just blew the shit out of their horns and woke up the whole house. And there's a big bar. Well, I just, I was floored. I, I loved them. I found out later that they, at the age of 17, had a little five-piece jazz combo. And they took it upon themselves to jump into this, to the trombonist's, uh, uh, I think he had a, a four-door sled of some sort, you know, Oldsmobile or something. And they took it upon themselves to drive down to New Orleans to learn how to play their instruments properly. Hmm. And they got as far as like Venice Beach or something when the Oldsmobile just just timed right out and was not going to go any further. And they raised up enough money by busking on the beach to buy an old van, slapped the plates off the olds onto the van, and they made it to New Orleans, and they stayed for about two years, and okay. they learned how to play their instruments. So they learned the right way, not from some school or some mm-hmm. book. They came right to the source. Sure. Of, and in fact, the trombonist was a trumpet player uh-huh. until he got to New Orleans. And then he heard the trombone, and he went, I got to do that. Oh, I hear you. So Sky Lamborn, trombone extraordinaire, amazing young man. And uh, William Joseph Abbott, Billy Joe Abbott, who plays the clarinet and alto sax on all the stuff on the, you know, on the record. And, and of course, in the studio. So you see some of the studio recordings, the videos of us doing live, and it's all live off the floor. Sure. I didn't overdub vocals. There was no scratch vocals. It was all doing it at the same time. Everybody, mm-hmm. drums, keys, bass, guitar. Well, we didn't have much guitar no requirement for that we had you know keys and horns and you know mm-hmm. harmonica but uh yeah it's all all live up the floor no overdubs just you know we did it all in four days the whole album wow. in four days yeah wow that's great well i'm uh, curious bob, I'm, oh. the up, the bob grant the oh, drummer sure. an amazing drummer i mean like uh and he comes from a uh a, a family of drummers right uh his father was a drummer his brothers are both like qualified up there drummers i think one of them's got you know uh you know his name on sticks you know um mm-hmm. so yeah the, the, he's just a, a consummate drummer and very artistic and he also plays trump uh, tr- trumpet as well so he's a very musical guy one of the mm-hmm. most musical drummers i've known and bob grant and of course the keyboard is the piano player uh as his, his name is uh, dave webb the guy out west that's on the recordings and of course not you know, in the, the doghouse sessions, right? So that, that was my group. Uh, wow. that, yeah. I, well, I, I mean, from what I've heard, the great musicians, they really, you know, they really make it uh, happen. They're right in the pocket and, uh, and um, contribute to really make it a good sound. Well, Harp Dog, I'm curious to know, are you writing any new music? Not really. 
you know, okay. uh, it's, it's, it, you know, once again, I mean, uh, I guess you could say, you know, what inspires you? And I'll go, well, life, and it's not very inspirational these days. Okay. So, so, that, uh, that's, that's uh, yeah, and, and once again, I don't have much to report on. And what I would report on, I don't want to report on, you know? Okay. So, I hear you. you know, um, well, your muse spews when it wants to. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I understand yeah. that. Yeah, well, it's, let, well, it's something you can't force, you know. I mean, like I'm, yeah. I'm just not that kind of guy where I flick a switch and go, you know. Like I mean, I speak very lyrically when I'm talking, you know, and I, I speak with with kind of a lyrical tongue. Uh, and a lot of people, you said it already once, you know. Uh, but I mean, in conversation, I get this a lot. Wow, that sounds like a blues song, you know. I mean, yeah, well, everywhere I turn, there's another blues song. That's my life. But you know, uh, I just I don't have the the uh, the just the the muse i guess to like just to, to you know there's nothing really pending it's all just in limbo yeah and i just have nothing to report on the limbo scene so well, you're not alone i mean i i know yeah. of i know so many musicians that are struggling to you know even pick up pick up their instrument and keep their chops up uh just because you know there's no gigs there's no rehearsal uh i'm playing my first public gig a week from today i'm doing i'm going to play taps for memorial day and uh and that's the first live playing i've done since uh middle of march of 2020 just like you yeah and uh so but i've i've been managed to uh, you know to kind of keep things going but you're not alone i know a lot of people in that same boat well i'm curious to know though because uh you do covers of other other blue song other people's songs i assume sure so if you're covering a well-known blues song that has a long-standing history do you feel any obligation to perform the song in a similar manner to the artist who originally performed and or recorded it? Or do you feel an obligation to make it your own song by doing it in a unique and new way? Good question. Uh, um, honestly, when it comes down to me covering a song, the main reason why I do it is not because it's popular, if that was the case, I would never have joined into the blues marketplace anyway, because <laughs> it's not popular. Um, you know, so that's that that's that's a, a clear and easy uh, path that you know it's definitely certainly not about. I would never cover a song because everybody else liked it. Um, I'm I, I just truly a misfit in that aspect. When people are asking for songs like you know Mustang Sally. Um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that song or, or you know, flip, flop and fly. Nothing wrong with that song. Mm -hmm. But other than it's been overdone a little sure. too much mm -hmm. for me and my taste, you know. So and it's like I'm not a good actor, which mm -hmm. means if I'm not really vested in with both feet, you can tell. I okay? get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm the kind of salesman that I can only sell something that I would buy myself. I understand. I can't sell it to you. I can't lie to you eyeball to eyeball. All right. So, and I feel I would be lying if I was doing songs for that were the, you know, the, 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 the top 40 of blues, even, you know, like just going with, okay, what's the, what's the most, you know, the, the more, uh, the, 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 the blues hits put, make that in your whole list of songs and you, you how can you lose right well right, right you know 
that's just i guess that was just not the the path that i was taking to begin with i've always been kind of the b-side guy at the best of times uh so so that being said when i cover a song uh i want it to resemble or at least suggest that i've heard the song before right mm-hmm. you know as opposed to like you know i've heard covers of, of of you know uh say you know a muddy waters classic that maybe isn't overdone like as i say for instance uh not that i you know uh i don't know for instance for for you know for for fact um but i'm sure that there's been more than one person has covered say uh um you can't spend what you ain't got you can't lose what you ain't never had you know um and in fact i think i even saw uh somebody like you know kept mo do that on a muddy waters you know sort of thing on a and e maybe 20 some odd years ago sure and if it wasn't for the lyrical content i would not have recognized the song mm-hmm. i didn't like that i i think mm-hmm. it, i think if it's not recognizable then just write your own song right you right. know just write another song now it, you know here's an example rolling stones they come out and they record you know on their first lp uh, was the first time I heard uh, Muddy Water, well, McKinley Morganfield's song, I Just Want to Make Love to You. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now, they do it at breakneck breakneck speed, right? Right. Then I find the Muddy Waters version, and it's, like, real slow mm-hmm. and real, you know, greasy and heavy. And it's like, okay. Now, it still resembles the song. Yeah. It's just it just sped up, right? Right. So, so I'm okay with that. Changing things around a little bit, you know, to to fit your your own, you know, kind of personality, maybe. Um, I remember taking a song. Uh, it was a uh, Jimmy McCracklin tune. I recorded in 1994 live with that the the uh, the uh, Homers with a Harpers album recorded down in Portland in 1994, uh, and a song. <clears throat> it had <clears throat> kind of that stride barrel house piano thing going on <clears throat> and <clears throat> we could not get that as a four piece well basically a trio with a harp player right mm-hmm. all i had was you know two cordless well one cordless instrument and a bass upright bass drums and a guitar and me so you know basically a guitar trio with a singing harp player mm-hmm. and to be able to get comp that get that groove and get the pocket that that jimmy mccracklin did with this song called uh she felt too good it couldn't get, we just couldn't get it done it just mm-hmm. would not sit right mm-hmm. so i then said let's try it like this do it on one of those you know right 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 like that and we created a way to present that song mm-hmm. with the intent that we that I felt now and then here's another perfect example of covers on that same album home is what a harp is uh 1994 Portland Oregon we started covering a uh a, 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 a stray cat tune mm-hmm. uh, and it was called dig dirty doggy mm-hmm. now dig dirty doggy was a ba 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 da da 
but we already had one of those. Right, right, right. So we changed that into a booba dooba 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 you know, and and so uh, and there's still stops in it, but it's just you know. So we we had so there's times to recreate for your ensemble, but to purposely take a song, a cover or a, and a classic, and and mar it so it's not even recognizable is a travesty to me sure i feel you should show the respect and the honor to at least i mean why are you covering the song if it's if it doesn't resemble the song sure. i've heard guys too you know like they they take on like elmore james tunes and i mean uh first of all if you can't deliver the lyrics stay away from the song in my opinion right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and elmore was you know an amazing singer that a lot of people can't even, you know, get close to, to deliver at that impact. And, uh, and so, you know, it's like, well, what, what, what key do you do that? Oh, what? And it's an entirely different key. And it doesn't sound, well, I do it my way. He says, and I think to myself, well, <clears throat> why don't you just write a song right. instead of, you know, trash a classic. Right. I hear you. Resemble. Yeah. So that's that's well, my heart knows on that one. Well, I think that's excellent. I mean, you know, I'm a musician. I wear different hats. As a classical musician, when I have my classical musician's hat on, of course, our goal is to replicate the music as closely as possible to exactly what the composer intended. When I'm wearing my jazz musician hat, I tell the guys in my band, we're not a cover band. I don't want to do it exactly the way so-and-so does it or whatnot. You know, I mean, you want to keep the, the spirit of the tune. You want to keep the, you know, because you do respect, you know, I'm not going to do Duke Ellington, you know, some real wild far out way. Yeah. Uh, I may do it uh, our way, but it's going to, like you said, I, I'm right there with you. And the other thing I, I like about what you said is you have truly identified yourself as an artist rather than an entertainer by saying that you're a B-side guy. And here's, and here's why that is. Because when I used to teach at the university, I used to tell my students the difference between an artist and an entertainer is that an entertainer gives the audience what they want. An artist gives the audience what the artist wants. See, uh, okay. I mean, I, I can, I can, I can wrap my brain around that, but Craig, I, I look at it more like distinctively like this. Uh, <clears throat> life is art to an artist. Uh, entertainment means, I mean, like uh, we've all had, you know, teachers who bore us to death and we've had teachers who are entertaining and engaging and right. make you want to pay attention and learn. And, right, right. And that's that's the way to teach. So I, I've always kind of felt more like uh, I, I, my job is to enlighten people or, mm -hmm. you know, to, to open their minds up to other things they may not know they like. Right. I'm so right that's kind you. of more like a, uh, it, so I'm I'm out there trying to teach them something, as well as 
enlighten them into uh, the, if they pay attention to the lyrical content, even the covers I choose are very important lyrically. You know, I don't sing about hate. I don't sing about, you know, beating. I don't sing about anything that's, that's you know, what I consider uh, dark and evil and mean. I right. try and embrace the light and also uh, clever lyrics and fun stuff, but to to really to embrace, you know, loving you know one another and uh like brothers and sisters not you know like porn stars okay like i'm talking love i'm oh, talking yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah i understand um, yeah and you know so you know uh to be an entertainer means you should be entertaining yeah no matter what it is you're presenting true and you know so that's that's where i kind of draw lines like i i feel like i'm an entertainer but on the same token it's like you know, I, I see some of these, you know, uh, like award ceremonies and, and categories and whatnot, you know, and like uh, entertainer of the year, you know, as, as an example. And I ask myself, okay, how do they decipher what a great entertainer is? Right. Is that a guy that's got like, you know, uh, uh, James Brown moves? You know, I mean, because yeah. that's entertaining. Yeah. But is it, or or or, or is it, uh, like, uh, you know, the deep conversational thought and 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 emotions that come out of the storytelling of like John Sebastian, or uh, you know, or or some some you know other you know dude that just like getting down with himself, uh. uh even Muddy Waters was sitting on a stool towards the last part of his life. And, and you know, Howlin' Wolf. Now, Wolf would be rolling around on his back and crawling around. Now, that's entertainment. But then he, as he got older, he was sitting down. He's playing a guitar. But, I mean, it's intense. Sure. And that's so, you know, I, I question. I, I, I can never get into somebody else's brain. But I go, uh, see, because I've never been the one to get up on stage and, and, and show off and right. do all these you know like i see you know singers and they and they're like they're busy doing stuff when you know someone else is soloing it's like just go into the shadows you know like mm -hmm. let me focus on why is this guy soloing and you're trying to like you know uh, to 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 steal away the 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 attention for like 24 bars yeah i hear uh, you you know, uh -huh. you know so i'm the guy that i'll just like I'll point to who's on, you know, who's up next. And I'll like, if I, if I'm not sitting down on a stool, like I do these days or used to, uh, I was kind of just going to just back off into the shadows away from my mic and watch the beauty that I've just pointed to the rest of the audience to pay attention to this, you know, the clarinet or the guitar or the piano or whatever. Right. But just get your eyes off of me. I'll be back soon enough. Yeah. Is, you know, and so, you know, what is entertainment? But to engage somebody and to enlighten them by, you know, a happenstance, like they don't even know that they're learning things. Right. Until they realize that the next day, what has, you know, they're seeing things differently. Right. So sure. it's kind of a covert a covert plan of like yeah. you know getting away with my own evil plan of like you know oh you want to hear flip flop and fly well here's a song in the same key but the words are different all yeah. right and, and and i'll and present them you know like uh you know winoni's harris's you know get to get baby and i'll put it in the same key form and it's pretty well the same group i could sing flip flop and fly over that yeah. but i'd rather not 
You yeah. already know flip flop yeah. fly. Yeah. Here's what you don't know. Yeah. Right? I yeah. my my favorite line is when I get a request for something I don't want to do, I'd say, "Oh, that's such a great song, but we're going to do one that has all of the same notes in it." Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and they're cool with it. Listen, <laughs> to kind of wrap things up, I just uh, just a couple of things I would be interested in knowing. It's just a question I kind of ask everybody. If you could perform with any artist that you have never performed with, either living or dead, who would that artist be and why? Yeah, that's another toughie. Good question, a tough one. Um, like I said, you know, there's I, I, there's so many that are you know that are long gone and not forgotten, and then you know there's a few that are still living. But um, top of you know just to, I, I would have loved to have met Mac Rebenack and shook his hand. You know, I mean, I got to see Dr. John play once. Uh, and it was at a festival and I, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to, to shake his hand, but I, I, I thought there would be another time, you know, mm -hmm. and there was a moment though, like when our eyes connected and there was something that happened, you know, I had my son on my shoulders and, you know, we were standing right beside the stage. We watched him walk off. He sits down, he sits down to the piano and the music, the, the music, the sheet music that he had, it flopped like the book went boom like this and he looked and it was, he saw me and my my little boy doing this, and he smiled. There was a moment of time where, like, everything else stopped, and he just kind of. And I would always want, was hoping to, you know, get a chance to go. Do you remember that moment? Mm -hmm. Even though mm -hmm. we're complete strangers, because I know that certain things lock into my head that happen when I'm in that position of on stage, you know, with a complete stranger. But it was a sure. point in time that was. You know, I remember that happening, you know, that, yeah. that, that, boom, boom, ah, look at that, you know, beautiful face, you know, then they get back to business, you know, right. But of course, you know, he's, he's left us. So, oh, yeah. but I mean, yeah, to be able to sing or to play with him, that would have been uh, uh, definitely a dream come true. Uh, Muddy Waters, of course, you know, the closest thing was I got to, I got to sit, you know, sit in and, and uh, have uh, uh, Willie Big Eye Smith drumming for me. And I did mm -hmm. back up uh, and support Pine Top Perkins in 1995 or 94, 94, I think it was 93 uh, at, at a, a, a Calgary club. Uh, so me and my bloodhounds backed up Piney for, you know, uh, one weekend, Friday and Saturday, I think it was. Uh, that was getting kind of close to the mud book, but still, you know, didn't really get to, you know, I never even got to see Muddy Waters. You know, he was dead by the time, you know, he never... I wasn't, you know, aware of him when he ever did come out west, you know, so I missed on uh, that one. Uh, uh, I hear you. Well, you know, I mean, it's it, there's there's probably hundreds of people. I mean, I, I'd be the same way if you asked me a question about people I regret having uh, missed the opportunity uh you know and it's uh it's one of those things that you can dream about and and wonder what if but uh anyway before we wrap things up i just wanted to remind my listeners that on my show notes harp brown has a harp dog <laughs> harp dog has uh, uh updated some links for his In the Doghouse series, which I've included in the show notes. Also, his Facebook or his live Facebook page, his official website, and also the links on YouTube and other uh, of Harp Dog's videos. 
as well as his biography from his webpage. So uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about Harp Dog Brown, and you should, those resources are there for you. Now, before we leave, Harp Dog, is there anything else you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about? Well, um, no, I think that was a pretty in-depth conversation. Uh, um, I, 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 I got to say, you know, when I got back off the road, you know, and I, you know, found myself like with no place to go and, and, uh, you know, dwindling savings account to kind of, you know, get through the three to four weeks to flatten the curve. Um, <laughs> it's been a long 15 months and, you know, I started noticing like immediately everybody doing live broadcasts from their garage and their basement and stuff. And it's like, I hate to say it, but I mean, there was stuff that was, you know, pretty stinky, you know, um, I was questioning if these people could even get hired if there was no pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden it's like, there was the, like the, the, the level of quality was, you know, there was no stick at all anymore. It was just anything goes. There was no, no quality control. So I just kind of, well, one being so far away from my regular touring crew two being far enough away from even other guys that I could hire if I had money. But I mean, I can't exactly do that without, you know, some income. Uh, and me being, I was primarily a touring musician. I mean, I got in this business 40 years ago, primarily to travel. I didn't ever buy. I mean, last summer was the first time I bought a lawnmower. And I'm 59 mm-hmm. years old. And I mm-hmm. bought my first lawnmower last year. Why? Because I never had to mow lawn. Why? Because <laughs> I lived in a suitcase. And, you know, or, you know, I didn't, didn't, I was never really anywhere long enough to even, you know, clean the toilet. You know, I mean, so... <laughs> My point is, is that I don't have a, a, a home studio. I don't have like all this stuff that I can set up and do live broadcasts or, you know, relearn how to play my guitar again and do some shit to try to bring in some income. And I'm losing money. I'm losing money bad. And I can't, you know, I don't know how to, how to even get to the next, you know, the next level just to get you know just to keep my head above water you know and, and i don't want to go up hand, hand you know uh panhandling or, or even come across on social media like um you know i'm like you know everyone else you know we're all in the same kind of uh boat to some degree but uh, there is a tip jar link on my website if okay. you are so inclined to throw a nickel or dime towards you know uh me uh i would certainly appreciate it it uh it, put it this way um almost five months ago on the 29th of this month will be five months that i have not had a cigarette in my face all yeah. right yeah yeah um, and uh and you know and i don't drink a lot i used to drink when i worked now i don't work so guess what? I don't drink. Mm-hmm. So, so any tips are going to bills and, and not to, uh, you know, to booze and smokes and dope and all the other and hookers, you know what I mean? Like all that stuff that ain't happening. Yeah, it's a matter of, of survival. And, you know, so I appreciate, you know, I, I have been fortunate enough to get the occasional recording sessions, you know, and I can definitely have ability to go to a studio and lay down harmonica uh, stems to then mail email them off to people so i've done that uh, you know I, I welcome that i love that but there's still not enough of that and i also teach harmonica 
and I teach it like a less like like a language. I don't teach it like you you know like 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 out of a book. I teach it you know how we learned how to speak by repeating right. what you hear. And mm-hmm. and uh, harmonic is, I would say, one of the most difficult instruments to learn how to play, and is even twice as difficult to teach it because it's all pretty much internal. Mm-hmm. It's what's going on inside your mouth, not what's, you know, you, so you can't just watch it and learn like you can watch a piano player or a guitar player uh, or even a, you know, the saxophone. You see the fingers, you know, where they're the position, you know, the fingers, none of that. It's all internal and harmonica. So I do video. I was doing video harp lessons, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, I mean, I, sure. I found it doing a video face to face. Uh, like Skype or Zoom or, you know, even a Facebook messenger has a, a video chat box. When you go straight face to face, there's less distractions. So I do have the occasional, but I don't have enough students. So, you know, I'll be farming students too. And I love to teach because, you know, once again, I learned how to play harmonica the hard way. And uh, and I know how difficult it was for me. And, uh, and there was nobody I could pick a brain on and could give me some, in, you know, some help and some guidance. I'm more of a guide or a coach, you know, and I just try to, you know, I come up with ways to, to develop your own vocabulary. And then it's up to you to spin the story you want to spin. But so, you. you know, so yeah, if I could get, you know, a couple more students that, you know, even every couple of weeks, you know, it just helps a little bit, right? So. All right. Well, All right. I, 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 I know, time, I know, well, I appreciate, it. I was going to say thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And uh, I certainly want to wish you all the best. And I know that you and uh, the rest of us are, are going to bounce back. I think uh, I'm, I'm have faith that that's going to happen so hang in there and uh and i'm sure that we'll be hearing lots of new and great things coming out of you in the future well let's uh keeping the finger crossed and then just hoping that uh that uh you know we get through this and into something where we can actually sink our teeth into something that we feel is worthy again uh but uh yeah i mean i'd who who would have thunk that we'd wake up in 2020 to some sci-fi movie we've all been cast into and yep. still haven't received any royalties, you know? I hear you. I hear you, man. Well, take care and all, all the right. best to you and have uh, a great rest of the day. And I'll be looking out for you. All We're right. Looking for new recordings, a new stuff on your website. And, and uh, so all the best to you. Thank you. You too, you my friend. Mm-hmm. Bye, Bye now. My discovery composer of the week is Girolamo Fantini, an Italian trumpeter and writer on the trumpet. He was born in Spoleto and baptized February 11, 1600. He died in Florence sometime after May 6, 1675. After service with the Cardinal Scipio Borghese in Rome, between February 1626 and October 1630, he entered the employ of the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Fernando II, in April 1631, as chief court trumpeter. In Rome, in the summer of 1634, he took part in the first known soloistic trumpet performance accompanied by a keyboard instrument 
played by Frescobaldi on Cardo Borghese's house organ. In 1638, he published an important trumpet method, Modo per imparare e sonare di tromba, printed in Florence, although the title page says Frankfurt. It is of historical importance for its inclusion of the first known pieces for trumpet and continuo, among them eight sonatas specifically for trumpet and organ. Fantini furthermore extended the high register from G2 and A2 known to Bendinelli and Monteverdi to C3 and once to D3 he was celebrated for his solo performance and must have been highly gifted, particularly in the art of lipping, so as to be able to play notes not in the harmonic series to which the natural trumpet of his day was confined. The All Music Guide lists 32 recordings of Fantini's music certainly a must listen for trumpet players, those who love trumpet players, and those who love trumpet music. In my show notes are two links to YouTube videos of performances of Fantini's music. First is a performance of a fanfare by Fantini for four trumpets, four sackbuts, and timpani performed by the new London Consort. Links to the performance are in my show notes. Second is a performance of Fantini's Sonata Detta del Nicolini performed by Boel Gidholm on violin, Naomi Gregory organ, and Brian Shaw on Baroque trumpet. That wraps episode number 38. My show notes along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with Milwaukee-based drummer extraordinaire Dave Bayless. Subsequent interviews will include Americana singer-songwriter Ro Myra, North Carolina-based singer-songwriter Miles Travitz, and Los Angeles studio musician, baritone saxophonist Terry Landry. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe 
of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.